texts we heard from the book of Hebrews already. Today's gospel reading is going to be from John chapter 12, and there will be an Old Testament reading from Jeremiah 31. And the common thread through all these readings is that God very much uh, cares about the human heart. John chapter, uh, sorry, John chapter 21 uh, begins this way at verse 20. Now there were some Greeks, some folks of Greek descent, among those who went up to worship at the Passover festival. And they came to Philip, one of Jesus' disciples, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. If you would be the voice of the Greek folks and read the request. Sir, we would like to see Jesus. And then Philip went to Andrew, and then Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. And Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now in John chapter 21, it is Holy Week in Judaism. It is the week of the Passover, and Jewish folks from all over the Mediterranean world are descending on the city of Jerusalem. And among them are some folks who were not born Jews, some, some Greek folks. They may or may not have spoken the language, but they have heard about this rabbi Jesus. Maybe they're coming just to get his autograph. I mean, Jesus has done some pretty amazing things recently. His friend Lazarus has just come back from the dead, okay, in the last week. And people really want to get into the presence of this person who says amazing things and does amazing things. We would like to see Jesus, is their request. By the way, I've been in some churches in the past where, he's, as a preacher, you go up and stand in the pulpit, and there's a little brass plaque that quotes these words that says, Sir, we would like to see Jesus. As a preacher, you kind of feel like a misfit, like, I shouldn't be standing here, <laughs> right? But it's, it's uh, supposed to represent our common will as the church that when we come and sit in worship on Sunday morning, that what this uh, request was from these Greek folks 2,000 years ago is also the desire of our heart. We want to see Jesus. Now, significantly, when folks ask Jesus questions, he typically uh, has some kind of amazing response. And in this passage, there is no response to the Greek folks who want to see Jesus. Their question triggers something uh, very deep in the spirit of the Lord. Jesus says, Now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. He is recognizing that in this question, it is signaling the last hour, the last chapter of his life. See, Jesus started his ministry in the north of Israel, just with Jewish folks. And now the circle has been getting wider and bigger, and the news has been spreading further, further afield. And now Jesus understands it has gotten so far out that folks who may, may not, don't even speak the language are coming to inquire about me. It's time for a different chapter. At the end of John chapter uh, 12, it says this in terms of Jesus' response. Jesus left and hid himself from them. Jesus never met with these Greek folks. Jesus never answered their question. He left and hid himself. What is going on here? Isn't Jesus supposed to be nice and friendly and hospitable? He generally does not avoid people. 
The chapter continues this way. Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. While anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus knows how it works. And this seems like a mystery to us. But death leads to life. Jesus knows how to be the Son of God. Jesus knows how to be the Messiah. And it means embracing this paradox that death leads to life. It works this way in the farming world, right? You put seed in the ground, and then mysteriously, six months later or so, it erupts from the earth and bears a ton of seeds that are good for eating and making bread and nourishing the earth. How does this happen? How does one seed turn into a giant plant? I remember back in Christmas of 2015, it was a really warm uh, Christmas week. It was like 55, 55 degrees on Christmas Day. I took my kids outside and we planted daffodil and uh, tulip bulbs on Christmas Day. It was awesome. I remember, you know, digging the six-inch deep holes, putting the bulbs in, and then saying, like waving goodbye to these bulbs and like, see you in three months, guys. Right? Because this time of year... See a little greenery coming out of the ground with the daffodils and the tulips? You put them in the ground, and a bulb is as ugly as it comes. It's just a gray, brownish, seemingly dead thing. And then just a few months later, this dead gray bulb erupts in springtime with life and color and beauty. This is what Jesus is saying. Not just in the farming world, but in the spiritual world. And not just in the spiritual world, in the human being physical world. Now that sounds like crazy talk, right? Because everybody knows we die, you go in the ground, and you're rot. Jesus is saying there is something more. And he claims that even for our life and times while we are in the land of living, that this is the pattern for a good life. That when you die to yourself... You enjoy real life. But when you grab and cling on to everything you can accumulate for yourself, you are slowly in the process of dying. It is not through self-saturation that we live a good life. It's through self-sacrifice. Now, this does not mean that people who follow Jesus ought not to have strong opinions and convictions and to be very aware of what you want and prefer. Jesus never says thou shalt not have preferences or wants or desires. In fact, in order to truly give of yourself and sacrifice, you need to know what you want. You need to know what you prefer. You need to know what is your best way. And frequently the time will come to be flexible with what you want. And in really significant times, to lay down what you want, either for God's sake or for the sake of your friends or for the sake of others. People who get older, I'll say, once you're past the age of 50. That's not very old to some of us, right? When you get past the age of 50, people who find a way to take their life and turn around and face younger people 
find happiness and joy and fulfillment that those who fail to make that maneuver do not enjoy. So you guys are playing your cellos, right? Miss, Miss Sally Gross is a lovely lady, right? She's pretty good at the cello herself. I mean, she could just play, she could just keep practicing on her own, but she has chosen to invest her time and affection and energy in you guys. Right? I really respect and admire that. that. Like, that's how it should go. For musicians, for business people, for healthcare professionals, you turn and face the next generation and share your experience and wisdom and help make the world a better place. It works this way even in the NCAA basketball tournament. Honestly, the best teams are selfless. The team that is going to win the NCAA tournament is not the team that just has the most raw talent, the most future NBA stars. It is going to be the team that selfishly shares and moves the basketball and passes. That's the team that is going to win at the end of the day. Jesus teaches this. When we give of ourselves, when we put ourselves not in first place, we come alive. But if we get in the habit of always being me, 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 another picture, more attention, please, it is a long, slow death. After saying this incredible thing, Jesus recognizes that it is time for his physical death. And he says this, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason that I came to this hour. So, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. And if you would be the voice of God, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that was there and heard it said that it had thundered. But others said an angel had spoken to him. This isn't the first time Jesus has faced this temptation, knowing that being the Messiah means the way of pain and suffering and death. When he went for 40 days in the desert... This was Satan's temptation. You can have all the kingdoms of the world. You don't need to suffer. This was uh, Jesus' disciple Peter when he heard Jesus say for the first time, the Son of Man needs to be betrayed and suffer and die on a cross. Peter said, no, 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 Jesus. It doesn't have to go that way. And remember Jesus' words? Get behind me, Satan. Like Jesus knew this temptation very, very well. I mean, he felt the fear and terror of having to die the most brutal kind of physical death. He knew this already in his blood and bones, and he gives voice to it here. Should I ask to get out of this, knowing what's ahead? And Jesus says, no. In fact, God, I'm not going to pray to get out of it. I am going to pray that what I suffer will bounce some glory up and glorify your name. Jesus is hungry for God's glory. And that's what helps him triumph over the terror of what he's facing. And God comes through in this amazing sort of way. Do you remember that the voice of God spoke as Jesus was baptized right at the beginning of his adult ministry? 
here, right before Jesus disappears at the very end of his adult ministry, the voice of God speaks from heaven again. This is a powerful prayer that Jesus offers here. When we are in pain, when we are in our hour of darkness, could you find the courage to pray, oh God, what I'm about to go through, glorify your name. I mean, that is quite a prayer. And God shows up. And then Jesus said, This voice was for your benefit, not for mine. Now is the time for the judgment of this world. And now the prince of this world will be driven up, driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from this earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show the kind of death that he was going to die. Jesus knows that things are about to get sorted out. When he uses the word judgment, he's not talking about condemnation. He's talking about the kind of judgment that sorts things. And people's allegiances are about to become very, very clear when he goes up on the cross. Are you still with me? Are you with me when I suffer? Are you with me when I die? Or are you going to run and hide? There's this paradoxical truth of a seed going down into the earth to die, and then it grows up and emerges and shows itself as something fruitful for all of us to see. And this is what Jesus is saying. I am going to lay my life down and die, and at the same time, I am going to be lifted up for everybody to see. And those who truly want to walk with me every step of the way, they are going to be drawn in and compelled and attracted. And after Jesus says this, he disappears. He hides himself. His public revelation is now complete. But it won't be long before we see him again. It's as if Jesus is saying to those Greek folks who said, Sir, can we see Jesus? It's as if Jesus is saying, You want to see me? Wait just a few days. Come on back on Friday afternoon. I will be the one hanging on a cross. I will be the suffering one. A person can never fully see Jesus, never fully walk with Jesus, never fully be his disciple until we behold him on the cross in his suffering. That's when Jesus will get to the heart of the matter. Jesus came from heaven to earth not to change God's mind, not to download something into our minds. Jesus came from heaven to earth to move the heart of God and to plant his life in our hearts like a divine seed that can grow up into something beautiful. The soil is right here within us and the seed is Jesus' life. Our Old Testament reading also speaks of exactly this theme, the heart of the matter. 
Jeremiah 31 says this, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Please notice that word, a new covenant or promise with my people, the people of Israel and the people of Judah. And this is the covenant, the promise that I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Now, we haven't all been here for the last uh, five weeks during the season of Lent, but in each of our worship service, God has made a different promise or covenant that has been part of our Old Testament reading. Okay? Four weeks ago, it was the story of Noah and God's promise to not destroy the earth again and to put a rainbow in the sky as a sign of his mercy and good intentions toward humanity. Three weeks ago, It was a promise from Genesis chapter 17 where God promised to give a son to a 99-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman. A crazy promise that folks laughed at. And yet this boy Isaac was born into the world. Two weeks ago, it was God's promise in giving the Ten Commandments. I'll be your God and give you the law. You be my people and live a weird life in the world because I'm your God. Last week was perhaps the oddest story of all, a promise that all you had to do as an Israelite in a particular situation was lift up your eyes and look at a bronze snake, and you would get rescued. All of these promises were things you could see. They were visible. They were external, right? You can see a rainbow. You can see baby Isaac. You could see the tablets of the law. You can read the Ten Commandments. You could see this bronze snake on a pole. You could literally set your eyes on these things. Now God is taking it to another level, and he's saying, when I give you a new covenant, it's going to be something not that you see with your eyes. It's going to be something that is inscribed on you, that is planted within your heart. You won't be able to see it, but this new covenant is going to be the thing that actually makes a difference in the universe and actually makes a difference for you. For all of the awesome things that God did in the Old Testament, none of them actually worked in the end, did it? I mean, if you read the pages of the Old Testament, it's just God does something great, people come back to God for about 10 minutes, and then they are up to crazy business again. Rinse, wash, repeat. I mean, just over and over and over again. And God finally breaks into history and is saying, I am going to do something different. I am going to put my divine life into humanity and try to plant it like a seed in your crazy little hearts and then see if something might bloom out of it. God wants to get to the heart of the matter. God wants to get to the heart of you. Would you like that? Or does your curiosity about God or Jesus just extend to, you know, I'll keep it on the periphery. Because that seems safe. Then I don't have to talk about it. People won't think I'm a crazy person. Just arm's length or maybe even at the end of the driveway. A safe distance. 
What do you want? What do you want in your heart of hearts? Do you want the life of Jesus Christ planted like a bulb in your heart? Or do you want what you've got on your own? Maybe you don't know the answer to that question. And it's fair, even as people who love Jesus and want to follow him, I mean, we swing like a pendulum. <laughs> Sometimes we're desperate for him, and other times we're, we're pretty happy. Thank you very much. There's a few questions I ask myself uh, to test my desire. I'll share them with you. I ask myself things like this. Uh, Greg, over the last month, when you wake up in the morning, what's the first thing that you think about? You know, the thing that presses in on you when you first open your eyes or your defenses are low. Do you wake up praying? Do you wake up inviting God's will for the day? Do you wake up eager to crack the Bible open or to have some thought about Jesus himself? Oh, what do you think about or where does your heart turn when things are going especially well? Is it on you or is it in bouncing glory back up to God? When things are especially dark or desperate, what happens in your heart of hearts? When you find yourself daydreaming, when your defenses are at their lowest and things just emerge from your brain, from your spirit? Are those things about the spiritual life and your life with God or are those things that are just exclusively about you? Aren't these horrible questions? <laughs> but they get at what is really there in our moments where our defenses are down. One more. What do you think of when you go to sleep? For some of you, the answers to those questions might be heartening and encouraging. Awesome. Keep your focus right there on the heart of the matter. For some of you, hear, hearing even these simple questions might reveal, oh my goodness, there's a lot of me at the heart of my heart. Do not despair. <laughs> Do not despair. We come here in a place like this to practice. Because as much as we love Jesus Christ and want to devote our lives to God, we keep slipping back into selfishness. If you are not where you want to be yet, it is simply time to practice. And what I mean by practice is uh, to actually try out what you believe and want to be most important, to behave as if that is so, even if you don't do it by nature yet. So if your answer to the question, when I wake up in the morning, uh, whew, I'm just worried about the 48 things I need to do that day. That is a great suburban answer. That might always be the case, but you can keep those thoughts at bay with some simple things. Find a prayer that helps you uh, 
turn to the spiritual reality before you put your feet on the ground. If you're able to, physically get on your knees. If you can sing in the morning, sing a verse of your favorite song. I mean, there are so many things that you can do to name what matters most rather than just letting yourself be attacked by your own thoughts in the morning. Same thing when you go to sleep. When you find yourself in times of trouble, rather than going through a month where you're just trying to problem solve on your own and getting more and more frustrated, you come to a place like this. You let people pray for you. You open your life. You seek spiritual counsel. Maybe you talk to a pastor. Maybe you talk to a small group leader. I mean, something that sends a signal to yourself that you're uh, at your heart of hearts, that is where the real solution and change and transformation is going to lie, not in your own powers of problem solving. This is about so much more than your willpower. I'm just trying to give you a few gentle suggestions to help you put into practice what actually is in our heart of hearts because if Jesus has planted his life in the soil of our hearts, ought not that to be our first move in every and all situation? And even if you don't want to, I like to use this phrase, good hypocrisy. Even if you don't want to read a verse of scripture or sing a song to God in the morning, If you do it, even when you don't feel like it, that's the good kind of hypocrisy. And your feelings and your willpower will follow. The day is coming, God says, when our connection to the one who plants a seed in us is going to be what's definitive about this life. Jeremiah 31 then says this. Can you imagine a day when this happens, when uh, a whole bunch of people got some good momentum in the same direction that God himself was at our heart of hearts? No longer will they teach their neighbor or have to say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, and I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. God wants to draw all people, all kids, all adolescents, all young adults, all grown-ups, all women and men. God wants to draw all of us into his presence. God wants to plant his life in all of us. But in order to do that, we need to pay attention to Jesus. That's how it happens. That's how God's divine life takes root in the soil of the human heart. Jesus himself made this connection. In Jeremiah 31, the key phrase was new covenant. Okay? Jesus says this. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it, And he gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. 
Did Jesus accidentally choose those words? Is that a coincidence? No way. Jesus knows the will of the Father, which is to share his life with everybody. And Jesus is saying, when I shed my life's blood on the cross, beholding my death, this is where Christianity sounds oh so weird, (laughs) beholding my death, being touched by my blood, eating my body, my flesh, drinking my blood, taking my divine life into you, not just your stomach, not just your brain, taking my divine life into your heart, that is the way that God is going to make a new covenant with you, human race. It's what the heart of God wants. Is it what your heart wants? So a week from today is Palm Sunday, the beginning of Holy Week. Uh, Just a simple invitation. A good way to keep God at bay would be don't worship, don't open the Bible, just try to ignore Easter. It's also spring break, so that will help. If you want this life more deeply in your heart, a week is coming up where believers everywhere will slow down, take some deep breaths, remember the old story, and just meditate on how far God has gone to show his love for us in lifting his son up on the cross for all to see and then planting him like a seed in the darkness of the earth so that real life might erupt for the benefit and beauty of people like us. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, uh, we thank you that you came from heaven and earth not to change our minds, not to change your mind, but to change our hearts and to put your heart in us. God, in the week that comes, uh, we pray that you will do exactly that for us. Do something transformative and real in the life of your people. In Jesus' name we pray.